Hello everybody and welcome back to Joint Air Christian Lifestyle. I'm your host Shane Fritz and I just want to take a minute to thank you guys for tuning in and uh, just hearing my heart tonight. Uh, tonight I want to be sharing um, a revelation that I had on John 9 and John 10 and uh, and really this came out of a place where I was I was hearing John 10, 10, and I was hearing it preached a lot. And John 10, 10 says, uh, the New King James Version, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. These are the words of Jesus, of course. And so often uh, I would hear this being preached um, and taught from the pulpit that the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy was Satan. And it really, it makes for a good sermon. I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't. I, I have preached it that way myself. And yet, um, I just don't find that in the context here that the thief is actually referring to Satan. Um, I think that it's a convenient way to explain what Satan does, but it's just not what Jesus is talking about in John 10, 10. And as I started to reflect on John 10, the whole parable there, um, the, the true shepherd and the good shepherd parable there, um, what I found was that, uh, John 10 is really just a continuation of John nine. And, the red letters that end John 9 turn into the red letters that begin John 10. And so to understand John 10, I first need to understand John 9. And it's also evidenced that John 9 and 10 run together in this way because the blind man of John 9 is referenced again in John 10. So again, what I want to do here is really to start looking here at John 9. And, and as I looked at this, what was jumping out to me over and over again is that John 9 and 10 is really a statement about the duality of Jesus. And we, and we see this all through Scripture. Um, in fact, if we were going to do it kind of uh, starting in Revelation and working our way back, we would see that Jesus is referred to as the first and last, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Uh, he's the author and the finisher of our faith. Uh, Hebrews, he's referred to as both the sacrifice and the high priest. Uh, he's the Lord and the Savior. He's the way and the light. John 10, he's the door and the shepherd. John 9, he's the clay and the pool. In every instance here, and we're going to really start exploding this as we look into John 9, but in every instance here, what we see is that in between these two positions of Jesus at the beginning and the end is a response from us. It's a heart condition. Uh, it's, a, it's a choice. It's a posture. It's a perspective on what we're going to do with the truth. And so, with that being said, I want to jump in here to John 9, and we're going to start reading, and we're going to start looking at this, and we're going to be doing this in kind of a verse-by-verse -verse, uh, style, 
So we're going to start here. We're going to read the the first five verses of John 9. It says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So the first thing that we need to look at here is what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is not saying. First of all, the disciples ask a pretty good question. Who's the cause of this man's blindness? You see, Jewish superstition at the time would would have them think almost in a uh, in a way where God um, would cause illness um, or infirmity based on sins of a parent, or based on the idea that. And, and this is really wild because we don't see this in the Bible, but there was this kind of a thought process and teaching that um, perhaps this man in a past life had sinned, and, and we see that in other religions. Um, not taught in Christianity. And so when Jesus answers here, we have to really pay attention to what he's saying. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now what's interesting is the actual word here for should be revealed is one word. And, and what that one word, the one Greek word means is to make known or visible what has been hidden. What has been what has been hidden or not visible will be made visible or known. And I think that's really interesting as we're talking about a blind man here. And we're going to see this develop as we go into the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees and between the blind man and the Pharisees. But Jesus goes on to say, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Now, what's interesting here is that at first glance, most people look at John 9 and this blind man and the fact that this blind man receives sight and say, well, obviously the, the works of God revealed are a healing of a man. And yet we know that that can't be the case as we look at it in the context here, because for one thing, the disciples had already seen people healed prior to this. And so it was not a revelation that God heals. The second reason I say that is because the works of him who sent Jesus, the works of the Father could only be done while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. We all know that healings, miracles, um, resurrections, all of these powerful works continued on after Jesus' death through the disciples. So therefore, we know that this work of God was not just a healing. So as we go on here, let's continue on. We're going to go into verse 6 and 7. It said, When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, 
And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, again, we have to go back into the the root words here a little bit. But what I want you to understand is that what happens here is not so much about a healing that Jesus performs, but that a healing um, happens because of a heart position and a response on the part of the man. First of all, when we look at this, the word anointed here. Now, anointed is used throughout the Bible, but this word translated anointed here in the New King James is only found in John 9. And it literally means anything on anything. And why I think that is so interesting, why I think that is so vital is that we have to understand that there was nothing special about the mud Jesus made. Anything. On anything, it did not have anything to do with the application to the eyes. Anything on anything means that Jesus could have uh, pulled out one of his hairs and put it on the man's knee and told him to blow the hair off his knee, and this healing would have happened, okay? That's, that's literally what we're talking about here, is that this comes out of obedience. The other thing is, Jesus never claims that he's going to heal this blind man, and the blind man never asks for a healing. The blind man simply listens to Jesus when he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And I think we get a big key into the fact that what we're really looking at here is Jesus in the fact that we are looking, and as we see this, right, we have the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. You see, it's the one who is sent. And so he goes, he washes, and he comes back seeing. As we go down through here, we're going to read down a little bit more. It says, therefore, the neighbors and those who had previously had seen that he was blind said, it is not this, is not this he who sat and begged. Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, how were your eyes opened? Again, what I want you to notice here is they don't say, how were you healed? How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Now we have the Pharisees come in. And so they Bring in the blind man to the Pharisees, and in verse 14 it picks up, it says, Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. Again, how he had received his sight, not how he was healed. And so the formerly blind man answers, he said, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Again, we just want to stop here for a minute. Jesus put the clay on his eyes. The man washed, and now he can see. 
Jesus was at the beginning, he was at the end. The man was in the middle. And so as we go on here, we're going to pick up in uh, verse 16. He says, therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. For he is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. We're going to start seeing, again, as Jesus goes on here, and this story unfolds, we're going to start seeing groups of people identified here. First of all, we're looking at the parents. And the parents represent a group of people who, no doubt, they were thrilled that their son had received sight. They liked what Jesus did. And yet they had such a fear of man, it was paralyzing. They feared the social and economic repercussions of what would happen by confessing Jesus as Christ. That we see all around us today as well. There are people in this world who want the benefits of Christianity, but lack the conviction to stand up for Jesus. No doubt these would be the ones that ultimately would end up alienated from Jesus. As we go on, we're going to see now the opposing response of a formerly blind man. 24, he says, So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. Again, we have to remember now this Formerly blind man, his parents have just sold him down the river. They said, look, if you want to say Jesus is the son of God, you're going to say it on your own. You're going to face this on your own. We're out of the picture. And so now we have the peer pressure, not even really the peer, pe the peer pressure. These are the superior pressures of the Pharisees coming against him. But the formerly blind man answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And there it is. And there it is. You see, he just confessed to Jesus 
as Christ. He just confessed himself as a disciple of Jesus, although he does not even fully know who Jesus is, he recognizes an authority and a power and an understanding that surpasses the Pharisees. He has got a boldness about him that his parents lacked. And so the Pharisees, it says there in verse 28, it says, Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. And this is what we're going to see unfold in John 10. This is the beginning of the explanation of the parable in John 10. Again, we start and we're looking at a duality, a dual role of Jesus. Now we're going to look at groups of people. Those who, uh, uh, two groups that both recognize Jesus, one who has a fear of man, one who has a boldness and a zeal for God, and then we have two types of disciples, those who are disciples of Moses, the old covenant, the law, a works-based faith where we have to come up with our own sacrifices, and a new covenant, a Christic covenant, thank you Bill Vanderbush and Don Wallaball, a Christic covenant, a new covenant in which there is no more sin sacrifices to come up with because the blood of Jesus has covered it all. Let's go on. Let's continue reading down through this. And the blind man continues here. And he said, why? This is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from. Yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one that was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You are completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. You see, the blind man becomes even more emboldened as they try to push the old covenant on him, a works-based religion on a newfound faith. He becomes emboldened and goes out zealously against them, declaring the goodness of Jesus. And of course, they just follow through with the threat they had already made and they cast him out of the synagogue. There, there is a repercussion for confessing Jesus as Christ. That's all over our New Testament. Can I tell you that those that are out there and they're declaring a prosperity-based gospel have missed the mark. Declaring the gospel is about prosperity in heaven, not prosperity on earth. It's a willingness and a sacrificial position to give everything up, including the breath in our lungs, to declare Jesus Christ as Lord. As we go on here, verse 35, now we get Jesus. Jesus is coming back in 
to the scene. It said, Jesus heard that they cast him out. And when he had found him, meaning the formerly blind man, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see. That those things that had not been made known, that had not been revealed, may be revealed, may be known. That those things that were invisible due to blindness are now visible. We're now back in the beginning of John 9. We're going back to the works of God being made known through this man. This is the completion of that thought. And that, and that those who see may be made blind. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Again, what are we looking at here? It's a heart posture. It's heart position. It's, it's where we see the need for Jesus or whether we see the need for ourselves. We started off, we were talking about the different areas in the Bible where it talks about the duality of Christ. And one of the places that we mentioned was the fact that Jesus is both the sacrifice and the high priest. And guys, you know, when we think about that, can I just say Jesus foolproofed this thing? I mean, he really did. I mean, let's look at this. He's the sacrifice and the high priest. The high priest presents the sacrifice. What's more, God put a high priest and a sacrifice in place. It will always be acceptable. The high priest presents the sacrifice and it is both God, Jesus Christ, in both those roles. And yet there's a duality for us as well. If we go to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, it says that our body is the temple. If we go to Hebrews 13, 10, we, we read about the, the blood of Christ being sprinkled on the heart, being sprinkled on the altar. You see, we have a high priest, we have a sacrifice. We are the temple, and we are the altar. The question becomes, is our temple purposed for the God of the high priest, and will we allow the high priest's offering to be placed on the altar of our hearts. Can I tell you that some of us, some of us, we find ourselves in this place 
where we feel like the blood sacrifice of Jesus isn't enough. Somehow we get inside of our own heads and we feel like, you know, I love Jesus, but man, I was such, I was such a bad person. I did such bad things. My mind is so wicked. And what it is, it's really, it's lies of Satan. It's lies of the devil speaking into us, planting seeds of doubt. Okay. And so at that point in time, we decide that uh, we need to add to the sacrifice. And, and when we do this, what we're really doing is devaluing the sacrifice of Jesus. Because you have to understand, if we feel like our life can add to the value of his blood, then we've just devalued his blood. We don't recognize its full value. And what happens is when we make the choice to start to try to cover sins with our own blood, all of a sudden the temple of our body starts to change focus. You see, we come to a place where suddenly we can serve ourselves a little bit because we're sacrificing ourselves for ourselves. And all of a sudden we, we get uh, threads of selfishness that kind of come in to us. And I really, I think that's what we see here as we start examining the disciples of Moses, right? The Israelites, the Jewish people, and we look at that history, right? And then we get to the new covenant and we get to the first century church and we look at those examples. And so we're going to continue on here and we're going to get into John 10 and we're going to start really um, just pulling this thing apart even more as we go into this. So we're going to go into this John 10 1 and we're going to start reading here. Uh, we're going to go through, I think, the first six verses to start with. And this is, again, this is still Jesus speaking. And he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. So Jesus here lays it out. He lays the storyline out for them really clear. It doesn't hit them at all. And what we're going to see here is that they just saw it in real life. John 9 was the real life version of John 10, 1 through 6. And now John 7 through like 18, I think. We'll, we'll get there. But but John 7 on is now a further explanation of, of John 10, 1 through 6. And he says, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Okay, so now, 
what we need to understand here is Jesus is the door to the sheep. Entering through the door to the sheep is crucial. Any other way into the sheepfold is the act of a thief. And when we read John 10, 8 here, what does he say? All whoever came before me. All whoever came before me. All shepherds who came before Jesus were thieves. Why? Well, let's go back up to John 10, 1. We're going to see this. It says, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way. The same as a thief and a robber. See, Jesus, the door, was not available yet. So, even the beloved Moses, who these Pharisees are so proud of being disciples of, even Moses, Jesus is referring to right now as a thief. All who ever came before me are thieves. And really, as we look at that, all who came before Jesus were thieves because they had to rely on works to cover sins. When we think about the sin offering in itself, the toil that went in to finding the perfect sacrifice to present to the priest to have sins covered for a year, there was toil involved, there was cost involved, and it was still not able to secure salvation. As we go on here to John 9 and 10, we're going to read John 10, 9 and 10 together for a reason. And that says, I am the door. Again, Jesus, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come. Okay. The shepherds, like Moses, do not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Okay, the first thing I want to notice here in John 9, there's three things mentioned. One, and these are the benefits, he will be saved. Go in and out and find pasture. John 10, 10, we also have three things listed. These are the negatives. Steal, kill, and destroy. So, what we're going to look at here is the differences before Jesus as the door in verse 9. And the works-based religions of the shepherds of Moses the disciples of Moses in John 10. So let's look at this. John 9, uh, we have those who save. And uh, verse 10, we have those who steal. Jesus saves those he shepherds through his blood sacrifice. Verse 10, those who enter another way take life by striving to find an adequate sacrifice, ultimately paying for their own sins with their own blood. Again, that's kind of what we talked about earlier with whose blood we put on the altar. You see, blood has always had to cover sin, even all the way back to Eden. 
It's just that now we have a limitless, all-powerful blood source through the blood of Jesus. Verses 9, the second one, go in and out. Verse 10, we have kill. See, those who go in and out by Jesus, the door, can go before the gatekeeper as often as needed, basking in his presence. You have to understand here, the gatekeeper decides the legitimacy of whether you're owned by Jesus or whether you have tried to enter into the kingdom by another way. The gatekeeper references the Father. Those who rely on works may be able to leave the sheep flock, may be able to leave that area, but cannot return or come back in by the gate, thereby losing the protection of the sheepfold, which guarantees death. Those that lead are actually killing their own flock. All right, the third one. Verse 9 says, find pasture. Verse 10, destroy. You see, those with the true shepherd Jesus continue to find fresh food sources, keeping them well fed as they freely move about. You have to understand that a sheep is a heavy grazing animal. A flock of sheep kept in one place destroys a landscape. It destroys a food source. Those who are being held, those who are being held captive by illegitimate shepherds soon exhaust their food source and destroy the area that they're in because they don't have the freedom to move outside of where they're at. Verse 11, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And here it is. You see, we have a decision to make here. This is the duality thought brought about once again. We have decisions to make. Will we cover sin with our own blood or allow the blood of Jesus? Will we try to enter the kingdom by climbing up the wall or will we simply accept Jesus and walk in through the gate? And it really is that simple, but it takes a recognition of authority and power of Jesus. This is the Lord and Savior moment. See, Jesus doesn't come to steal, kill, and destroy. He comes to give life and life more abundantly. It's, it's not just that he saves you from the sting of death by being born again of spirit. It's that while you enjoy life here on earth, you don't toil to gain salvation because salvation comes by grace. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. There is a way in. It's called the door. 
And once you're in through the door and you are in Christ, then the shepherd gives his life for you so that you may be saved. So that you may be saved, have the authority to go in and out of the sheepfold at will into the presence of the gatekeeper with boldness into the holy of holies and find pasture, be nourished, be fed, be edified. But it comes by recognizing him as the door and the shepherd. You see, we have to let the king be the king so that something is saved to be saved. We have to allow the high priest to offer the sacrifice in a temple on an altar dedicated to the Most High. We have to do what when Jesus is anointed on us like the clay. When Jesus is applied to our eyes, do we then listen and wash? It's all about a heart posture. It's all about a perspective. It's all about humility. And guys, that is what we have got to grab hold of in this time. We have got to make sure that we are allowing him not just to be a savior, but to be a Lord and a savior. We have to not just accept him as the shepherd, but also the door. We can't rely on ourselves. And listen, guys, I know there is, there is a tendency. It's built into our culture, at least here in America. It's built into our culture that we need to take care of things ourselves and yet that is the furthest thing from scriptural. We cannot rely on our works to fix this thing, guys. It hasn't worked for thousands of years. It's surely not going to work now. There's only one recipe for success, and that is the application of the blood of Jesus. Guys, I want to just thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, I know we covered a lot of scripture here. And we didn't even get through all of the John 10, 10 parable. That being said, uh, I just appreciate your time. I appreciate you hearing my heart on this. I just, I felt like this was something we needed to explore. Um, because I think that there's a lot to look at here between the, the beginning and the end in what we really call like the dash, right? And the dash is, is where we have an opportunity to respond to what Jesus has done. Thanks so much for joining me. We look forward to catching you on the next episode. Be blessed, guys.